Success Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping college students with mental health issues set and achieve goals for themselves to get them where they want to be. I am your host, Derek Malenzak, and this is episode 63 of the podcast. And uh, welcome back, y'all. And it is week three here uh, in the at least uh, spring semester at Rutgers. I hope that things are going well for you in your semester at whatever school you are in. And even if you are not in school right now, maybe in between semesters, welcome to the podcast. Happy to have you. Um, when I think of week three, I, I tend to convert things into percentages these days. And so I think, damn, 20% of the semester is already done. Um, things uh, are flying by for us. So we will uh, talk about goals a little bit later and, and kind of check in on um, how I've see, kind of see my goal shaping up and uh, talk about some strategies to help you guys achieve your goals. Um, but first, we're going to get into our uh, discussion and our interview. So I'm very, very excited to bring you today's interview. Uh, I'm going to be uh, speaking with Ellen Sachs who is an accomplished uh, author, scholar, um, lawyer. She also is, uh, has her um, has a degree now in, in psychoanalysis, which actually we didn't touch on in the interview. Um, but she is um, quite prominent in the field, um, mainly for her memoirs. Uh, she wrote a memoir, The Center Cannot Hold. And um, I had not actually read the book um, prior to reaching out to her. It was funny, if you listened to last week's interview with um, Pat Deegan, she brought up Ellen Sachs at one point. And it was only after that interview that I had written her name down thinking, hmm, I wonder if she'd be interested in coming on the show. And sure enough, I, I reached out to her and she was quite gracious. I, I was, I'm really, uh, it was really exciting to talk to her and inspiring. Um, so it prompted me to, because I, the interview kind of came together rather quickly, um, I wanted to do some background research because I had uh, seen Ellen's TED Talk a couple of times, actually. I'd shown it, I think, in one of my classes a few times, and I'd had somebody that had um, turned me on to it, and I just thought it was a really good representation, you know, from my experience of working with people with schizophrenia, of um, what people describe. And so I had that in my mind, but I hadn't read her book, so I had got, I got the book on um, Audible, and uh, as you guys know, I love listening to books more so than reading them, at least the, the kinds of stuff I, I read for pleasure. So I, uh, I really plowed through it because um, I wanted to get it done in time for our interview, and uh, I, I managed to uh, achieve that goal. And um, it was a really impactful story. I, I, was, I enjoyed it um, a good deal more than I, I expected to. I've been into uh, a lot of just you know self-directed learning lately, and um, I actually haven't read you know a biography or autobiography you know in a good bit of time. But I have one on the uh, on the queue that I will be reading uh, shortly. So it was something different than I'm than I've been used to reading, you know, and I haven't read something like that in a while. And I think the thing that I came away with the most, I'm going to talk about a couple of themes and then I'll, I'll get to the interview. Uh, the theme that really, uh, or the thing that really struck me is I actually, probably more so than the average person out there, have spoken to a number of people that have had schizophrenia and, and have worked with, you know, upwards of 100 people probably. 
uh, or more over my years. Um, schizophrenia is not that common of an illness when compared to some of the other mental illnesses out there like major depressive disorder and PTSD and, and whatnot. Uh, it affects about 1%. Schizophrenia affects about 1% of the population overall, and that's been a pretty steady number for decades. Um, it has not really changed. So um, even when you have a, a life or a career working in the mental health field, um, you do see uh, probably a, a great, a, d a good deal more percentage of people that have schizophrenia than you know the average population. But even then, you're working with a lot of people with other disorders. Uh, so I've known a lot of people and I've talked to them and, and they've told me about what it's like to have schizophrenia, but I've never gotten quite the insight that I have that after listening to Ellen's book. Um, if you're interested in what it's like to be psychotic, um, she describes it, um, I, I would say wonderfully, but it, it's a, it's sort of a painful description, right? Because the, um, the thoughts and, and the, um, beliefs that she describes were, were not pleasant. Um, so, you know, I'm sure it was somewhat of a cathartic experience to write the book. Um, but you know, it also was a very educational experience for somebody like myself who has had a good deal of experience uh, working with people with mental illness, but it was a good, you know, good education for me, insight into what, you know, somebody experiences when they, you know, have delusions um, and when they have uh, psychosis. There were a few themes that really struck me. Um, throughout the book that uh, kind of get touched on in the interview, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about before I get to it. Um, she describes a number of close friendships throughout the book. And in the in her interview, talks about her friend Steve, who she mentions um, throughout the book. And I really see that as, as a just such an important piece. You know, we talk about support a lot on the podcast, and that can mean a lot of things to, you know, different people. You could have family support. Um, you could have, you know, professional support. You could have, like, group self-help type of support. You know, I go to an AA meeting, and that's, you know, different kind of support. You can have collegiate support, you know, with uh, your coworkers. But she talks a lot about these close friendships she had with, um, you know, students, fellow students in her programs over the years, college and then grad school, um, and then at uh, her, where she eventually ends up working. Um, and they just seem to really, you know, anchor people um, in when they are in their, at their worst, um, they know that they can fall back on people and, and have them to depend on. And um, so that was one theme I just kind of noticed in the book. And another one, you know, they, it was discussed in terms of medication, but I've, I've discussed this theme in the sh on the show before, and I saw it play out in her book as well. This idea that when you have support, you have the dignity to fail. And that sounds a little funny, so I'll explain it. Um, Ellen talks throughout the book about her desire to not want to be on psychiatric medication and details her chronicles her experiences of what it was like to, to try and lower or get off the medication and every time she had people around her kind of talking like you yeah, know probably isn't a good idea to do this whether it was her, her therapists or her close friends that i talked about earlier or whoever but she in her mind for her recovery needed to try 
you know, and I can relate to that feeling as somebody in recovery from alcohol abuse. And in the beginning, I really thought I was different and special and, and that I could like, you know, set some rules and still be able to drink, but not be an alcoholic. And I had to learn that on my own terms. I no amount of people telling me that's not going to work, which plenty of people did, uh, could really instill that in me. It's like, yeah, I believe them. No, I had to try for myself. And when I failed, you know, I had the people, the supports around me to pick me up and say, okay, you know, I'm sorry that had happened to you. You know, what, what have you learned? And, you know, what can we do for you now? And it was really like at that point, at a certain point, I realized, yeah, I learned it. All right. I'm not special. I can't do this. I'm just like everybody else that has this problem. And so it, it was a huge, huge learning experience that nobody could learn for me. And, and learning for you is, is basically giving you giving you advice and expecting you to follow it. So I respect the the decision she made throughout her, her earlier years and wrestling with that decision to take medication and having the support of her friends that when it didn't go as planned, they were there to pick her up. They were there to kind of support her and, and work through it. And then eventually she kind of came to, you know, this understanding that it is something she needs. And she'll talk about that in the interview. The last thing I wanted to touch on, which we, we talked about a little bit in the interview as well, is this idea of work as a sort of um, a coping skill or a strategy. You know, when you are stressed, right, um, it might feel like easy to be like, well, I'll just not you know, I'll relieve some of my responsibilities if it comes to like school or work, right? Somebody going through a really rough time might get advice from their doctor, like maybe you should withdraw from college, you know? Um, or, you know, maybe if you were employed, maybe you should consider a position that's a little less demanding. And from my experience of talking with people, and, and Ellen confirms this, it's, and Pat confirmed it last week, it's really not what people want to hear. And maybe I'm preaching to the choir here because maybe you've had these experiences too where you've really struggled to make a commitment, right? Whether it's school or work or whatever, you really had a hard time, but you got that done. And you're hoping for some recognition or for some sort of encouragement. And in, instead, it's more of like, oh, I could see you're struggling. You know, why don't you take a break? Why don't you relax? And it's like, no, why don't you just, you know, acknowledge the hard work I put in and just leave, look, treat me like everybody else. Um, so this passion for her work, um, you know, and I say work is like her schoolwork um, in, the, um, in the book. It's a lot about that. Is, is sort of a coping strategy for her. And, and um, I'm excited to have her kind of maybe discuss it in a little bit better detail because, um, you know, that's why we have people on the show. Uh, that's why I interview them. So without further ado, let me bring on Ellen. Uh, Ellen, welcome to the College Student Success Podcast. Okay, I am here with Ellen Sachs, and I am very excited to have you on the podcast today, Ellen. Welcome. Great to be here, Derek. Thank you so much for having me. So, Ellen, um, I had you on the podcast today to talk a little bit about, um, you know, mental health and uh, some of the work you do. Um, but I wanted to kind of start off, you know, going back a little bit, um, thinking about your own experiences as a student in college with a mental illness. I'm interested to know what were some of the strategies that you learned to help you keep focused on your academic goals 
Uh, and if, if you do have things that you thought of, like, are they still the same things you use today? I mean, it's a, it's an extremely good question. Um, I'd like to say first that I, I, I was pretty healthy in college. It wasn't until I went to graduate school that I completely fell apart and decompensated. So I'll look at those later, later years. And one thing, you know, one thing, one question is how does, how do you arrange things in your life so you can work? For me, work was the way that I kept from being too symptomatic. So work was kind of my best ball work against my mental illness. Um, so, uh, so that's how that happened. I mean, there were small things you can do. Like if you get overwhelmed, if I got overwhelmed, I would, you know, I can't think of the word. If I were overwhelmed, I would make a schedule. So you read this article in this hour and that article in that hour and break it down to smaller pieces that are less overwhelming. Yeah. But for the most part, as I said, uh, what I usually say is my mind is both my best friend and my worst enemy. <laughs> and, you know, work work was something that really, really helped me. Yeah, it, I definitely am finding that. As I talk to other people, I spoke with Patricia Deegan uh, a few weeks ago, and she was talking about an experience she had in school where she was really struggling and, and, and made it and was really hoping to kind of be acknowledged for that and instead was told, you know, you should go home and you should take a break. And she said she craved the structure of being in school and working, and that really helped her and, and to have her exactly. uh, people in, in school or at work, you know, kind of discouraged that was – was challenging. So. so so when I was being interviewed to be readmitted to Yale Law School by the head of university psychiatry, he said, why don't you take a few years and work as a cashier, get your occupational feet wet, so to speak, and then think about coming back to school. And I thought to myself, I've been a student all my life. I'm good at it. I like it. The hours are flexible. If I have some days where I'm not working hard enough or not able to work, I will have other days where I can work harder. Um, so all those things make being a student and an academic, you know, incredibly wonderful. Um, so, uh, you know, how much more stressful to have a line of people demand change or something like that. Yeah. So it's not one size fits all. Yeah. And it's definitely, you know, people don't think about it as stressful, not working, you know, and, and a lot of the research, exactly. uh, in our exactly. world uh, in supported employment does back that up. So, um, yeah, exactly. I, I definitely encourage people, you know, to kind of, you know, if they feel like they can handle, you know, to keep with their their activities and their routine because they do often serve as a um, a respite in sort of. I completely sometimes. agree. I yeah. completely agree. Actually, the Yale Legal Services was uh, the clinical part of the program at Yale Law School, and the the joke used to be that Yale Legal Services was the best sheltered workshop in the country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe it. Um, so now to focus a little bit on what you're working on these days, I know you founded an institute uh, called the Sachs Institute for Mental Health Law, Policy, and Ethics, and I just think that's incredible work. Um, what are the, some of the issues that the institute is focused on currently? So we have a different issue each year in our six years. The first year was on mechanical restraints, which is something that I underwent and was very traumatized by. Second year was psychotropic meds in the law. Third year was criminalization of mental illness, people ending up in jail and prison instead of getting care. Um, fourth year was uh, mental health disorders in college and university students. And then the next year was cinema and mental health. And right now we're working on supported decision-making in mental health. And supported decision-making is, you know, typically if someone becomes impaired, they're found incompetent and a guardian is appointed to make decisions for them. And we want to step back a little bit and say, you know, 
can we surround this person with supports, family, friends, mental health professionals, doctors, lawyers, and help them make their own decision? Um, so we're going to be studying that. It's, it's been done with developmentally disabled and demented people, but not with people with mental health disorders, and I've gotten some funding to study this with mental health disorders. Um, and it could potentially, you know, revolutionize how we deliver care, um, you know, and allow us to do certain things that we might not otherwise be able to do because we can't get consent. We're really helping people to be able to, to be able to consent. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. I talk a little bit about shared decision making in our program. It's a little bit different, right? Okay. Shared is a doctor patient yeah. supported as sort of everything. Okay. Where you live, what job you take, you know, housing and yeah. relationships okay. and but it's just, it's a very similar concept. Okay. I mean, I'm glad that you kind of clarified the distinction. Um, and that's awesome that you spent a whole year talk, focusing on on mental health in college. Um yeah, you know, our website has, has everything on video, so if people want to look at the, the year that we did on mental health, you can just go to the website. Yeah, I will definitely check that out and link to it in the show notes of the uh, podcast episode. Um, great. On that note, kind of, I was interested to know what you saw as especially important legal issues facing college students that may experience mental illness that they should be aware of today. Um. You know, there are a bunch of things. Um, you know, people are supposed to get accommodations under the Americans with Disabilities Act, but they can run into roadblocks where professors are very negative about it and, and uh, discriminatory. And so there, there are problems with the application of the law. Um, another issue would be uh, you're an undergraduate and you want to go to law school or psychology school or medicine. What do you say on your resume about your mental illness? So that can be an issue that can arise. Um, and then another issue that can arise is uh, applying for to be a professional, like a lawyer or a doctor or a psychologist. You have to have a quote. Um, uh, sorry. That's okay. There's a moral fitness part of the application where, where they'll ask you, depending on the place, more or less about your, your mental health history. Mm -hmm. So that can come up. And you obviously you can't lie. That would be... That would be you in a lot of bad trouble, but it all, to tell the truth, it might be problematic. You might have to have more interviews or, or whatever. I mean, theoretically, if you've gotten through medical school or law school, you're probably well enough to, to practice, but that's looked into. Um, mm -hmm. So that's some people think about. In jurisdictions that, I think Louisiana, for example, sorry, Louisville, Kentucky, I, I'm not going to say that because I'm not sure it's right. So sorry. Okay. That's okay. Um yeah, we've we've certainly seen our share, you know, in our area of the country. I had somebody um, in in one of our research studies that had some kind of, you know, some suicidal thoughts, and you know, the person that was working with them, you know, alerted public safety, and you know, tried to kind of, you know, illustrate like it's okay, there's no imminent threat, you know, we just need some help. Right. And you know what happened? You know, guns blazing, you know, 16 oh, different uh, EMS and fires and, if, you know, just oh made God. a complete scene. And that's kind of some of the things I don't, I don't know if it falls into the legal, but certainly the ethical jurisdiction oh, of, like, of just how to absolutely. educate on uh, on how to deal with people in crisis because, it's, you know, they hear suicide and I think get so worried about a number of things that like I've actually would... heard a, heard of, of a case where a policeman shot someone because he was threatening suicide. Yeah. <laughs> this is like so ridiculous, so yeah. out of control. But it is. Um, it just makes the work you guys are doing so important. Um, 
So to kind of focus on another aspect, thinking about um, the role medication plays, uh, it's I know played a pivotal role for you during your college years and then beyond, um, and is is a very personal decision. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, having lived your life and, and you know where you're at now, what you would say to college students who are struggling with that same decision of whether or not to take meds for their mental illness. I think it's an incredibly important decision and that most people with serious mental illness need medication. That's part of the treatment of choice with therapy, um, I, I believe. Um, there's a lot of resistance to taking medication. Um, some of the arguments are that people don't like the side effects, but to me, if the choice is between drooling at night or being psychotic, I'm going to take drooling at night. Or even gaining 10 pounds. If I gained 100 pounds, I might feel differently. So that's one issue. A second issue is... Um, People feel good on the meds, and they feel like they're cured, and they don't need them anymore. The way people stop anti-bacterial, uh, you know, uh, anti-bacterial uh, antibiotics, because um, they feel like they're feeling better, even though you're supposed to f- finish the course. Mm-hmm. Another thing is people are in denial that they have mental illness, so why would they take treatment? But you can also often finesse that by saying things like, well, whether or not you have a mental illness, you're complaining about sleeplessness or being jittery, and these meds can help with that. And then finally, there's what they call the narcissistic injury of having a mental illness and needing medication. It's just painful. You feel lesser, you feel degraded. And the way to prove that it's all a big mistake is to get off meds and do well, which is what I tried and tried and tried to do. Once I got on meds continuously, my life got so much better, and it was as if the mental illness became accident and not essence at which point the riptide that kept sucking me in kind of set me free. Um, yeah. The other, thing is, the other thing is I think people with mental health disorders and psych meds get a bad rap. So I remember college intro psych class. One of the studies was the investigators stood outside an elevator in a medical office building and counted how many people threw their prescriptions away before they got in the elevator. <laughs> so people don't like to be on medication. I mean, that's just the bottom line. But it's pretty important for, for those of us who struggle with serious mental illness. Yeah. And uh, I mean, uh, it's going to, you know, in terms of college students, the likelihood is they're going to feel much better and be able to work harder and be more productive and do more, do better. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of them, it's probably their first time with diagnosis and they may be struggling exactly. to accept it. And, and I, I could relate. And it's a time of big turmoil generally going to college for the first time, leaving home, you know, having your own schedule to set and mm-hmm. everything else. Yeah. And then the last thing I thought of, just because I, I just finished your book, actually, in preparation for this interview, is is you, you talk about sort of the, the tinkering about, like, you know, you're not always going to find the right med the first time, and you may have to try right. different ones and different right. dosages. And it's such a, right. you, you have to be so patient. And um, I, I can imagine yep. that being a very difficult struggle. So. Yeah, it takes a while for the meds to take effect. And, mm-hmm. You know, you're struggling in the meantime. And you know, would that we would get medications that work quicker and they're trying to do that. Um, yeah. But you make a very good point. Yeah. Um, so last question, uh, and then I would just kind of ask you if you uh, have any way to get you know, more info about what you guys are doing. Um, I-, I thought about this one for a while, um, but I-, I wanted to know uh, if it was possible to go back in time <laughs> – uh, what advice would you give to your college self, knowing what you know now about mental health illness and, and management of the of that? Um, I think I would have uh, uh, told, said to my former self, tr- 
try medication, try medication continuously for six months and see what it feels like, see if you need to do it. And if I could have, I'm, I went 10 years trying to get off medication. And I look back on those years, and I think, you know, I wish I had been smarter sooner, but I'm glad I was given the opportunity to make the decision in my own time, in my own way. So I'm glad I wasn't forced. But looking back, I wish I had uh, tried staying on medication more continuously earlier in my course. And there's some evidence that length of untreated psychosis correlates with brain damage. So you can be doing yourself real harm by not taking meds. I didn't know that at the time. I stopped taking them or tried to get off them. But that's what they say now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I and pre- then do other things that I that have been extremely helpful, uh, uh, like uh, excellent psychotherapy five days a week and psychopharmacology and, again, family and friends and accommodating workplace and kind of all those things go together to help me evade my, quote, grave prognosis where I was expected to live in a board and care and not work or work at a menial job. Yeah. Absolutely. And and that was definitely a theme I picked up in your book, too, is just having the those key people. It wasn't a lot, a, a, a large quantity of people, but those quality people in your life that were exactly. there for you. Exactly. And, yeah, it cannot be um, overstated, you know, how much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Ellen, my friend Steve, this is kind of a funny story. My friend, closest friend Steve from law school knew I was uh, psychotic and asked to call my doctor and he said, Dr. Kaplan, you know, Ellen um, seems really psychotic. She says, she's, you're going to China and she's going to go there in, in advance of your trip to clear it out of all the bad people, to which he responded, how very considerate of her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just shows what, what, what people will, the lengths that people will go through. And, right, right. Yeah. Right. And I also like what you said in that, in that response of, of just being allowed the, the dignity to kind of figure things out for yourself when yeah. it came to that decision. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I have a similar experience. I don't have a mental illness, but I'm in recovery for alcoholism. And, and there were a, oh, wow. a number yeah. of years that were just like, I, everyone told me what the right thing to do was. And, and I knew it, but you just can't, you have to learn for yourself. And um, right. Sometimes there's no amount of people telling you what the right thing to do is that can substitute, you know, figuring that out and failing with dignity for yourself. So, uh, it's been so, uh, so wonderful having you on, Ellen. Um, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful for me. So much for coming on. Um, if people want to learn more about your work that you do, where can they find out more information? Um, I can go to the Sachs Institute for Mental Health Law Policy and Ethics. So we have a web presence and you can see what we've done and what we're doing and, Okay, great. And I will link to some of the work you did uh, related to the study of um, mental health uh, issues on college campuses uh, for sure in the show notes today. So thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. So I hope you uh, enjoyed that interview and and got something out of it uh, as much as I did. Um, I recommend you checking out her book, uh, The Center Cannot Hold. I have a link to it in the show notes for today. Um, If somebody out there is into Audible uh, and wants a free copy of it, uh, Audible has this cool thing where you could send people um, copies of books that you buy and 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 listen to. I've always have a hard time just saying if I should read a, an Audible book, but read or listen to, you get what I'm saying. Um, so they have this op- opportunity you could send the book to one person um, to kind of, you know, 
hey, check out this book I read, and it's free. Um, so if somebody reaches out to me at, on the email address uh, for the show, college student success podcast at Gmail, uh, send me your I guess if I think I could do it by email, I could send you a link to the Audible book. And you can, uh, if you use Audible or if you've never used it and you want to try it out, I'll send you uh, The Center Cannot Hold for free. And you could uh, check it out and listen to it. It's really good. Um, so home exercise for this week. Uh, I thought about this one for a while because there wasn't something that came out of the interview that I was like, this really relates to... Um, you know, something in terms of a step to take uh, for people, you know, at this stage of the uh, goal attainment process for the semester. So I thought about an accountability step. I'd like people to tell one other person, at least one other person, about the goal that you intend to achieve this semester. This accountability trick helps to make the goal real. If you've been holding it inside of you up until now, um, but it also serves as a means to get you started if you haven't already, you know, taken the first few steps. Um, so, you know, let somebody know, you know, if you haven't, you may be kind of thinking about it, but, you know, you don't know if you want to make the commitment. Here we are two weeks now going into three weeks into the semester. And you're like, oh, I got to get into this. Derek is in, in my ear telling me about goal achievement and saying I could do it and bringing on all these great guests to kind of encourage me. And so... By George, I'm going to do it. So, uh, you know, tell somebody about it because articulating it kind of makes it real. And you may, it may be a little fuzzy still in your mind of exactly what you want to do. And I think that's going to help me when I talk about my goal next. Um, so you may kind of clarify it or make it more concrete when you tell someone. And it also will kind of spur you into action because, as I've talked about before, it's sometimes easier to let yourself down than it is to let somebody else down. So, if, you want to make a change, maybe you find somebody else out there that is also working on a goal. They could be similar goals or they don't have to be. Uh, and you guys can work on your goals and sort of encourage and empower each other together. Uh, so tell somebody. Um, my goal progress, I wanted to tell you a little bit about. So I mentioned on the first episode of the semester, episode 61, that I was interested in a wellness goal uh, related to physical health, but also with a social element to it. So I'm interested in like being more physically fit. And I've been working on, a, since like the middle of last semester, I was doing a lot of like plank exercises and um, they really helped, really helped kind of like get my core strengthened. And if anyone's done a lot of planks, you know, they kind of get boring. So I've kind of gotten out of that routine and I'm looking for something new. So I've been trying different things. You know, I really like exercising, like not going to a gym <laughs> um, or, or paying money really to do anything. So like I went for a run and I hadn't done that in years. And so I'm like, you yeah, know, maybe I can work that into a routine of like running like one day a week because in the past, it's always the, the, the restriction for me has been like a physical one. It just hurts my knees too much to run a lot. So I thought maybe I could try running once a week. And if that, you know, if, my, if it, I didn't have a lot of knee pain, that might be a good sort of like one thing to do each week to help work on my physical fitness. Um, I am also, I like doing challenges, you know, like 30 day challenges or, you know, seven day challenges. Um, so I started doing a, uh, like a push-up challenge, which is pretty simple. You just start 
on day one doing as many as you can and every day you try and do one more than you did the day before so um so those are just like little things because i i'm into as you guys know like routines um and I, I don't like to go very far to do exercise. Like I still do the walking with my dog every day. And, you know, so I have other things too. But I'm also looking for things that are sort of more social ways to be physically fit. So I sort of went out of my element and um, posted actually on Reddit. Um, I was interested in playing racquetball with somebody, <laughs> you know, I used to play racquetball with uh, an old college roommate of mine. I got, I really enjoyed it when we were living together we'd play, you know, like once a week and I haven't played in a number of years. So, um, I was interested in playing again and there's a, a racquetball courts as part of Rutgers, you know, so I could access them for free. They're not too far away. So I put it out there and, you know, that's kind of a big step for me. Um, I'm not what I would, call an extrovert you know I, I don't sort of you know I'm, I'm social I think but I don't like you know I wouldn't call myself an uh, a real extrovert I'm more of an introvert I think I said that wrong a little earlier um, so I think just kind of like putting myself out there at this age and, and meeting new people you know just for friendships is sort of um, a little bit beyond my comfort zone uh, so I'm, I'm trying to push myself like that and um We'll see. We'll see if anyone uh, takes me up on the offer. But uh, if you're in the Newark area and you want to play some racquetball, <laughs> reach out to me. Um, so anyway, as I wrap things up, I want to let you know I have uh, kind of what the schedule is going to be like over the next few weeks. So next week we're going to have another interview. Uh, and then we're going to take a break from interviews. Um, next week's interview, though, I am super fucking excited to bring you. Um, I'm interviewing uh, a mentor of mine. So last semester, I interviewed a mentor, uh, a, a colleague of mine, Amy Spagnolo, And that's somebody that, you know, I've known for a number of years and it's helped me directly. This mentor is somebody that I never met or spoken to until I did this interview. Um, so his name is Jack Spierko, and I've discussed him a little bit uh, on the peripheral in the past as somebody that's inspired me. Um, he's the biggest reason why I decided to do a podcast is he's a podcaster. And um, the things he talked about has really helped me in terms of learning really what I stand for. And the way I did that was sort of figuring out how to think on my own critically um, and digest what is sort of always being thrown at me and yelled at me and told to me by the media or by, you know, uh, social networks or whatever. Um, so he's helped me tremendously. And I've actually, I've been working on getting that interview for uh, a year now. Um, so it was awesome. I really appreciate him coming on and, and it's going to be very different than these last two interviews. Let's just uh, put it that way. Uh, so I've included a link to his podcast and his wet, his blog. Um, in case you're interested in reading up on Jack before you hear him next week. Um, so look forward to one more interview next week. And then we're going to take a break, as I mentioned from interviews and we're going to uh, do a series. We're going to start a series of podcasts devoted to RAP plans for school. RAP is Wellness Recovery Action Planning. Um, and so this is a way that when people are well, that they could sort of document the way that they would like their services to be coordinated in the event, their mental health services and academic services, in the event that things don't go so well, in case they experience a relapse or symptoms. Um, I think they're really, really awesome ways to sort of 
not only think through for yourself when things aren't going well for you, what would be the best way for you to be helped because you may not be able to communicate that when things aren't going well. Um, but also to have it so that, you know, people close to you know, you know, so that when you're not going well, you can, they can see that your wishes are sort of carried out. So if you're not really sure sort of what that means, um, you could look up what rap plans are. Um, the creator of rap, Mary Ellen Copeland, um, is somebody that I've reached out to just recently, too, to see if she would come on the podcast. So I do reserve the right to throw one more po- uh, interview in in case she does take me up on that interview, because I would certainly want, if possible, to have her on before starting that series. But if not, no problem. But if uh, uh, Mary Ellen, you're listening, uh, come on podcast. I reached out to you on LinkedIn. Um Anyway, so yeah, look forward to the rap series. We'll do uh, an episode on wellness tools and then an episode on uh, your daily wellness plan and what that means, Uh, an episode on triggers. And then I think we'll probably have a break. I mentioned uh, earlier that I'll be observing the holiday that is known as spring break in the college community this year. And um, so, yeah, yeah. Then we'll resume after the break, wrap up the series, hope to have some more killer interviews for you, and uh, just in general, help you guys with your goal achievement in any way I can. So with that, I want to take you out with a song by a band called the Allman Brothers. If you've never heard of them, uh, you've probably heard this song if you have even had limited exposure to the Allmans. Uh, And this song goes out to Butch Trucks, who is a founding member of the Almonds, played the drums for them for many years, and just last week, unfortunately, took his own life. Um, So, yeah, it's always hard to hear things like that. I I wouldn't call myself a huge Almonds fan, but, um, you know, it's always sad to hear of somebody, you know, in the industry, I I listen to a lot of similar music um, as the Almonds, and I went to the Peach Festival over the summer, which is an Almond Brothers based festival out in Scranton. It was really, really fun. Um, So, you know, my heart goes out to their family. And so, um, yeah, we're thinking of you, Butch. With that, uh, this is Derek and uh, wishing you a good week. Take care. Peace.